0: Even since we're previewing the Masters this week, uh, in this episode of the podcast, why don't we just get straight in with the Masters and and your thoughts on the Masters at this time of the year, what it's going to be like without the fans, without that sort of Masters buzz?
1: It's Well, I think at this point, fans are probably happy to have anything. And I think you saw that vibe during the PGA Championship and during the US Open and it's got to be said. I think for all of the abuse that is generally directed every year at you know the USGA or or the lords of Augusta National, there's something to be said for having those guys be responsible for the major championships this year, uh, because these are the guys who you know they, to use E. B. White's old phrase, they wind the clock every morning as a contribution toward order, and they were finally getting in our third major of the year, uh, for a very long time it didn't look as if we were going to get any. And yeah. if any golf club or any organization can create the best possible replication of normal circumstances uh, for a major championship, well then Augusta National can certainly do that, at least as regards playing uh, conditions. the Everything else that goes with a major championship that we don't have, well, you know, that's not really up for negotiation. That's beyond even the control of Fred Ridley.
0: Mm. In terms of the event itself then and what what to expect, does the fact that there is no crowd there, does that help bring more people into contention?
1: Absolutely. I also think it probably eliminates some people. You know, we've heard Rory talk about how he finds it a little more difficult not having a crowd to draft off of, but I don't think it's a, a coincidence and I I just wrote a column about this at the weekend that hasn't been published yet. I don't think it's a coincidence, Paul, that the two majors we have played in the COVID era were both won by guys who had never been in the heat of a Sunday afternoon in any regular major championship. Obviously, Colin Morikawa was only in his second major start of his career. And the only time Bryson DeChambeau had ever been in contention at a major was one month earlier at the PGA Championship with no fans. And You know, that's not to say the fans are guaranteed to make a difference, but they're certainly a factor. I mean, they amplify everything that happens on Sunday afternoon in a major, whether guys are heading up the leaderboard or heading south on the leaderboard. The fans kind of add to that atmosphere and they create that kind of crucible of pressure under which guys find out whether they are going to, as I put it in this column, whether they're going to go through the finish line like a thoroughbred or if they're going to stumble like an Icelandic pony. And that the crowd is quite essential to that. And, you know, we're grateful for the golf that we have and we continue to be so. But two of them winning who'd never been in that position before may be a coincidence. If it happens a third time, then I think we're talking about a trend.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, and, and evidence that there are some players for whom, as we've talked about before, people have heard the podcast, for whom golf is not just about playing, it's about showboating. And it's about playing with the crowd and through Mm -hmm. the crowd. And for other people, they prefer that sort of isolation and silence that allows them to compete without that external pressure. Is the price? A lot of guys can. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Sorry. A lot of
1: guys can just treat it as though it's a member guest, and that's that's a big deal in a major championship to be able to not have that external pressure. Obviously, you still know you're playing for a major, and your own internal wiring can short circuit it. if you're not accustomed to that challenge. And even if you are accustomed, we've seen great players, totally short circuit, some in major championships, not least last year Mm. at Augusta. But it's certainly a factor. It doesn't hurt a lot of people, but it does hurt a handful who kind of do like that showboating and the draft off the energy of the crowd.
0: Mm. Talking about the Masters, we're obviously talking about Bryson there, winning the, the, the last one. And obviously he's going to go into this event with a big favourites tag over his head. He is a character that divides opinion. He's certainly a character that you've written about on numerous occasions over the last 18 months or so of strolling through some of your stuff earlier. Is Bryson good for golf?
1: Yes, that's, that's not even up, up for debate. He's got some serious growing up to do. And my, my greatest cri- criticism of Bryson has been the, the general absence of self awareness and the apparent lack of anyone in his inner circle who's willing to tell him to grow up. Mm-hmm. I mean, that particular incident in Detroit when he essentially berated a cameraman for daring to do his job and film Bryson while he was having a temper tantrum and then suggested afterwards that all cameras there were, were there to protect his brand. I mean, that's a level of idiocy that you just can't teach. Uh, but again, for what we've seen all summer long with, with Bryson as we came back with golf from the lockdown, and he dominated the headlines all the time. And I thought this was great because golf needs more polarizing characters. And I think it's great every time Brooks Kepke tweaks at him as well, or, or Bryson tries to tweak back. We need to get away from this idea that golf pros need to be these vanilla paragons of virtue where they're all good guys and they love puppies and they give money to charity. All of this stuff that the tour assiduously promotes. It's, it's not a bad thing, to have a little bit of antagonism in, in the game. And Bryson certainly brings that. He brings it with fans and he brings it with, with fellow players. I don't think he's anything but good for the game. He could just stand to play a little bit faster.
0: Yeah, the idea that the players are too buddy-buddy may have something to do with the fact that there's simply too much money sloshing around at the high, top level of the game. And if you go back 20 or 30 years, there was, it was a bit more cutthroat. They were respectful of each other. But you know, Damon Mcgrain has said to me previously about if you're getting more birdies than him, you're getting into his pocket, and that's the type yeah. of that's the type of attitude people need.
1: Yeah, when you look back at a certain generation, and it, it struck me at the U.S. Open because there used to be something. If you've been around this game long enough, there used to be something that every on knew as a U.S. Open player, and it was a Curtis Strange, it was a Hale Irwin, um, it was guys who were just absolute cutthroat killers on Sunday afternoon Mm -hmm. and they would think twice about giving you a Heimlich if you were choking to death yeah and you don't see that anymore to an extent I mean Brooks might actually be the modern day iteration Mm -hmm. of that and that he just moves through the water with a shark like a shark with no peripheral vision not looking at the chum bobbing in his wake at all Tiger was obviously that as well but there aren't many of them because you know they're The guys kind of give each other a hug instead of Heimlich. You know, they're busy going on spring break vacations with each other. And that's great. That's fine that they have those relationships. But it's interesting when I asked Kepka earlier this year, um, we were in the locker room at Riviera. and I was doing a preview interview for what I thought was going to be a May PGA championship. Uh And I asked him who his friends were out there. And he said he didn't have friends Uh out there that, you know, these are people that he competes against. And Rory has made similar noises before that he wouldn't consider anyone on tour a close friend. And it's a tough line to to kind of cross or figure out what side of it you want to be on. But, you know, ultimately, these are people who you're supposed to be competing against. You can do it in a graceful, professional manner, but antagonism isn't necessarily a bad thing.
0: Yeah. Rory has managed to maintain a relatively... Well, not always graceful but he certainly set himself apart with how he's prepared to talk honestly and openly about any subject, which is, Mm -hmm. you know, you're talking about vanilla vanilla professionals and he's managed to avoid that. He has and I'm sure it uh,
1: gives Sean his manager fits at times because Rory's got a tendency to, um, he does what people tell politicians never to do, which is he actually answers the question he's asked. And sometimes Rory will, if it's a question he hasn't faced before, he's going to talk through it and work through what he thinks on that subject as he's answering it.
0: Uh-huh.
1: At some point, six months down the road, he could face the same question uh-huh. and he's thought more about it or circumstances have changed and he changed his view. That's It's still just been a thoughtful answer. And Rory's shown himself willing to take a stand. I mean, the one that really struck me was, when the premier golf league was being peddled well, and you know, still is in, in some corners and it, it was a payday, a cash grab for guys. And the, the guys in support of it mostly were guys whose best days are long behind them. Yeah. And they wanted to cash out. And Rory was quite explicit when he said at Bay Hill that his line was, I didn't like where the money was coming from, referring to the Saudi Arabian money behind it as an attempt to sports wash an atrocious human rights record by staging golf events. And, you know, other golfers don't do that. Their peripheral vision doesn't necessarily extend beyond their wallet. And Rory sort of stepped up on an issue like that. I'm sure there's plenty of folks who would disagree with him on a a lot of issues, but at least he's willing to offer up something other than some kind of canned, uh, you know, take one shot at a time Mm. nonsense that we're tired of hearing every other week of the year.
0: Yeah, from your point of view, and from covering golf overall, the COVID year, how has it impacted you in your job, and has it been interesting in a way to sort of have these things going on that have impacted on golf? You've been able to see how the golf business is trying to work.
1: Yeah, the the only real impact I suppose it's had on me is traveling a lot less because for instance in the case of the pga tour they have very much limited the amount of media that's allowed on site Mm -hmm. at tournaments um so i mean i went to the us open i went uh, for golf channel doing some shows at the travelers championship in connecticut which was i think the third event back perhaps um but i haven't really been out there much at all this year which i find kind of odd but it's been actually, I think, kind of impressive how well the golf industry has managed to handle it in terms of the uncertainties around testing and potential spreader events when they first came back in June. And you know, there have been positive tests; there continue to be positive tests, but it seems to be managed in a sort of a reasonable process. You know, there's everyone assumes a certain amount of risk when they choose to go out there and play. And it hasn't been uh, run amok in the way we've seen it in other areas of life. So, I, you know, it's been a positive thing overall. In golf, it's just been disappointing in terms of the fans who can't actually clearly get to events. I think it's going to have a knock-on effect on a lot of charities that are associated with events on, on every tour. That Because all of that money generally comes from the pro-am revenues and there are no proams anymore. anymore. Um, so... It, there's going to be a kind of a reorg or a, a reset button is hit in golf in terms of the realities of the finances of it as we move forward. But it certainly, it hasn't been a dull year. Let's put it like that. And I, I think it's probably going to carry on. I mean, we're talking about the situation at the Masters this year with no crowds. I wouldn't necessarily be optimistic that there'll be crowds six months from now in April at the next one.
0: Is there still legs for that Premier League in a version to kick off? In this environment, where tightening the purse strings, take like a European tour. Uh, it's an interesting
1: one in the sense that the European tour, to me, is running on fumes financially. The you know the Rolex Series events are a lot of smoke and mirrors. Once you actually drill down, there is no money on the European tour. Uh, the European tour's best option is probably a merger with the PGA Tour. That's also the PGA Tour's best option because it would uh, prevent any kind of PGL takeover of the European Tour, which is unlikely anyway, because ultimately that would require a significant majority of players on the European Tour and not one of them is going to vote to give away the assets of the European Tour to the Saudis to then have the PGL and reduce the European Tour to some kind of feeder system Mm -hmm. in there. Uh, It it has legs in the sense that if somebody's offering guys a couple of hundred million dollars as a cash-out, well, that's always going to have legs, no matter what you're offering them. But ultimately, it's where it's finding support has been predominantly with the the older guys who see one last chance of a payday. And I thought it was interesting that the Players' Championship that week, um, because Rory had... Next, his interest in it the week before at Bay Hill. And then you had Brooks Kepka and John Rahm at the players. Uh, when Rahm told me on the Friday that he was out of it. And at that point, that was the number one, number two, and number three players in the world. And they're still three of the biggest names in the game, even though neither of them is number one anymore. But it's it's very hard for the PGL to find traction if the top players have rejected it Uh, based on loyalty to the PGA Tour and it's also not that easy to somehow clean up the dirty money because Rory put that stick in the ground. This is a reason to object to it. It's not simply control over his own schedule which would be a big problem for a lot of these guys. If they're going to host 30 tournaments around the world, these guys don't play 30 tournaments anymore and they're not prone to be told where to show up and play and when they have to play and that's what PGL is. It's From their standpoint, it's indentured servitude, very well-paying indentured servitude, but they're not prone to be told uh, where to go, where to play and by whom. And so I think the PGL is always going to struggle against that.
0: Now you've spent the last few weeks you've been back, you've spent most of your time obviously in America, you're back home in Ireland, and you just were in Ireland in the middle of a period where we had one of those weird ones where the, the different jurisdictions were putting different rules in for golf. Um, from afar, and, and sort of, you've probably been watching some of that during the initial lockdown. What is that? Has anybody been picking up on that other than Irish golfers? Does it even make any impact anywhere else about how sort of weird it is?
1: No, I think uh, within a broader g- golf conversation I think people just find it like if you're a fan of golf they find it slightly odd that there would be a lockdown on a sport that has you know the built-in social distancing obviously it's from the demographic involved it's got a lot of social aspects to it a lot of mental health aspects to it uh, I've never heard yet in the last couple of weeks anyone to reach out to me and say uh, other than people who live here say well why don't you just cross over the border and come play in the North. And, you know, I, I thought it was an act of kindness from the government to close down courses here. So I didn't have to go play. It's, it's kind of saved me all kinds of trauma and frustration.
0: <laughs> well, it's good that you've talked about that because I wanted to bring, get into the whole idea of, of you enjoying hitting balls and range, but not necessarily playing golf. Is this, is this a persona or is this actual Eamon Lynch? Is this, is this, is this part of you?
1: This is what I have become, Paul. There was a point, probably about ten years, maybe a little less than that. I probably played a hundred plus rounds a year, and I was fully in pursuit of the top one hundred golf courses in the world. I played sixty something of them, and then I made the horrible mistake of trying to get better. Oh. So I took lessons from from everyone. You know, periodically I get a message from Brad Faxon telling me he ran into some baggage handler at the airport in Atlanta who's willing to give me a lesson if I listen to him. And uh, I just, you know, I, I became a range rat and I'm still a range rat because, uh, you know, the great thing about being on the range is you don't have to go find it and you don't need a pencil in your hand. So I probably, this year so far, when I were approaching November, I've played six and a half rounds of golf this year. Um, I've probably hit balls. I'm going to guess probably at least 100 days. So it's, I need to kind of swing that pendulum back the other way for my sanity at some point. But COVID year isn't exactly the year to do that.
0: No, no. But you obviously still have a great fascination in the game, even, and a great interest in the game. But where is that? How does that, how, you know, are you just a, a writer who writes about golf? Or you're somebody who loves the game as well and enjoys playing the game? Uh,
1: both and the latter is, mm, I mean, I still enjoy it sometimes. Um, mm-hmm. I find it very frustrating, but I've never really bought the idea. And I, I've had people say this. Brooks kept to say this to me recently. That, you know, don't you have to play the game to actually write about it? And I said, well, that's you know, like telling me I couldn't write about the White House unless I'd been president. Yeah. It's um, it doesn't uh, require, on that logic, only a, a corpse could work as a pathologist. You know, it's. I don't have to play. I enjoy the game. I, I love the game. I wake up at night thinking, I go to sleep playing a different golf course every night, and I wake up and get out of bed in the middle of the night with practicing swing thoughts that are, you know, moving around in my agitated mind. So it's, it's more of a disease than a passion with me <laughs> at this point, or more of a pathology, I suppose. Um, but, yeah, it's, I, I didn't start out writing about golf, but it's, it's been what I've written about mostly for the last... Certainly, seventeen, eighteen years. So I don't see that changing anytime soon.
0: Looking ahead then, until past the masters towards the end of this year and the next year, and we're in a world where COVID is still sort of knocking around at least until, shall we say, mid mid of the year, June. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what can can you look in your crystal ball and and look at a few storylines that might be worth you know aside and. and Aside from Bryce and trying to hit it 1600 yards every time he stands up, you know, is there, any, is there anything else out there on the horizon that we need to be watching for?
1: Um, well, I definitely think the, the COVID thing has suspended the distance insights report that the USGA and the RNA had launched what seems like a lifetime ago now, but it was actually only a month before the lockdown. They did that in early February. And I think they they pushed it back a year, but I'm not convinced, as some people are, that this is just a talking exercise. I absolutely believe they're going to uh, move against technology. And I think that will become apparent probably by the middle of next year. Now it's going to take them time to do that. And everything is set up as this kind of collaborative process, you know, we're giving due process to everyone for their input this year, which has now obviously been extended until next March by, by their own schedule. But and that distance inside reports ball was very much loaded up with all of the language of collaboration and goodwill. But that was the first shot in a war for the future of God and everyone involved in it knew it was so. And I think that's probably going to become a bigger storyline as we move into the middle of next year. Otherwise, I I still think we're looking at business as usual as it has been reset here, which is no fans for the most part, no pro-ams for the most part. They might try to figure out how to get around that one because at least that's a revenue generator for for the charities and tournaments involved. But I, I wouldn't be particularly optimistic that we're likely to see fans at any of the major championships next year because the way the second wave is going now, Where's the entitlement for optimism really?
0: And and fi- and finally, Eamon, the Irish impact this year, the Irish impact for the next couple of years, obviously there was a lot pinned on Porrig and the Ryder Cup and and Shane building on his performance and doing well and possibly picking another place picking his place in the Ryder Cup. It's been a quiet year for Irish golf in many respects all over. The girls have done reasonably well, but no wins. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, the, to me, the oddball in all of that, I suppose, was Rory because he was playing so well going into lockdown and then has been very, very patchy since then. And now, he had Michael Bannon out with him in Florida uh, the week before last. And that was the first time Rory had actually seen Bannon for an in-person session since before the Players' Championship in March. All right. With the lockdown, Michael hadn't been traveling. So, that to me, it's interesting that Rory started to show up more form just last week at Sherwood, but it's still too sloppy to, in, in his mistakes to make Rory any kind of bet for Augusta. I mean, he, he's always going to be a contender, I suppose, at Augusta as long as he's playing it, but I wouldn't necessarily expect that it will be a set up particularly well for him. Um, it, it, it's been a very odd year because, you know, Shane's still hanging on to his Open Championship trophy and he'll have it for basically two years by the time he gets to Royal St. George's yep. next summer. Podrick will have been Ryder Cup captain for longer than he thought he would be because, you know, it's all supposed to have been over a month Mm ago. and Here we are, and Podrick's got a a, a lot of dilemmas on his hand because how do you choose a Ryder Cup team when the qualification process has become so compromised and so bastardised the way it has with the way tournaments have been cancelled and the fields are suddenly shifting around. People are setting other priorities. They're not playing in Europe as much. And, you know, there's a, a huge stretch of the summer there where there was simply no European tour golf at all. So do you choose the team that would have made it in your mind back then? Do you start to go off the world rankings? Podrick's got a lot of work to do in that front. But, you know, ultimately, these guys will all find their, their reset buttons. And to me, the most exciting thing that's going to happen in Irish golf in probably the next four or five years is Tom McKibben. And you know, I just, every time he swings a golf club, my back hurts watching him. But there's a there's so much game in that kidney, so much fun to watch play golf. Um he's the one I think actually is he's gonna be worth watching in the next five, ten years.
0: Brilliant. Eamon, listen, thank you very much for coming on the podcast and having a chat. Um I appreciate you taking your time away from long walks on the beach. Um and stay safe when you get back to America. The range.
1: <laughs> Thanks, Paul. Speak to you it. soon.
0: Bye bye. Bye bye.